0: Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Minkowski, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. I hope you've all had a chance to check out our most recent essay from Dr. Elizabeth Iglesias Rios, Farmworkers' Vicious Cycle of Precarious Employment, Exploitation, and Climate Change. You can find that and all essays from our fellows at ehn.org. Alright, I am excited for this one, and you all get a break from hearing me talk this week. Today, our founder and director, Dr. Ami Zoda, speaks to Tamara Tolles O'Laughlin, the current CEO and president of the Environmental Grantmakers Association and founder of Climate Critical Earth, a visionary new organization supporting the next generation of climate leaders. They talk about the glass cliff phenomenon and the many ways that organizations fail to support diverse leaders even once they are hired, and how we should be reimagining leadership for the environmental and climate movements. Enjoy!
1: My name is Dr. Ami Zoda, and I'm the founder and director of this program, and I am so thrilled today to really have um, a, a leader in the climate and environmental justice space, Tamara Tolls oloughlin and um, we're, you know, we spend a lot of time on the show talking to early career folks, and um, we're so honored today to really get to talk to um, to a leader. Tamara has um, held multiple leadership positions in the NGO space, in government, and also in philanthropy. So we are so thrilled to have you here today, Tamara. Thanks for having me.
2: (laughs) I'm glad to be here. And I've been following this for a while, so it's very cool to, to, uh, to break the fourth wall. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, we we appreciate we see you on social media, and we appreciate all this all the support you uh, provide with us and um, provide to us. And um, so it, it's nice to be able to um, engage you in, in, in this way. Um, and you know, um, you know, before we get into the kind of the the nuts and the bolts of it all, um, you know, we always like to start off by learning um, a bit more about the journeys of our, of our guests. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from and where along the way environmental issues entered your life?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that I think that this question is kind of strikes at the heart of, um, my activist work. Um, so I was born into this work, um, in a way that I think is true for a lot of people. Um, I'm the, uh, daughter of a, A community-minded man and a woman who worked on protecting water so much so that when she retired from the city of New York, uh, the contractor that the city had contracted with basically turned everything my mother knows about water in New York into an app that the city uses to bill people. So so, um, my um, entrance into the work comes from uh, being a city girl with uh, the appropriate Um, Great migration routes to the south. So having a rural family um, with a huge and rich culture that migrated for a number of really political or racialized reasons to the north, uh, one directly to flee. uh lynching and the and the other to find a different way of being and then and then the other side it was a couple of folks who fell in love and went somewhere else and so um in doing all of those things that happen in life my um parent uh my mom dolores fell into the work of the department of environmental protection in the new york city um which is both a conservation arm and a water protector so they conserve the water up that comes from upstate New York through the usual processes, but they also deal with billing and had to confront some of those early issues around how do you charge for a thing that is free to everyone? Um, how do you uh, push people to conserve to avoid poisoning and then there's like this massive police force that's connected to that just to make sure people are actually doing the things that keep uh new york's water uh um uh quote unquote you know one of the champagne the champagne of waters is new york city's water right and that that comes at the cost of a lot of infrastructure which has to be paid for so um As a kid who spent a lot of time in and out of Prospect Park, um, it was delineated for me as the clean side or the dirty side. And I needed to be home uh, from playing on the clean side before the lamps came on inside the park. And um, my experience of being able to have, you know, Olmstead's design backyard as the main place Mm -hmm. where I played. And then, you know, going back and forth to my um, apartment where I grew up. It really felt like I had an unlimited amount of exposure to trees and grass. And uh, not to mention the fact that around the time of my birth in the 70s and 80s, there was a program Green Streets, which made sure that there was actually like a regulated amount of green space per every, you know, per capita. And so so I think. Uh, by the time I ended up at Vermont Law School, where Pat Parento called me um, an urban environmentalist, which I'm still to this day trying to decipher whether that was a positive or not uh, thing that he said, I, fl- I flagged him, like, what are you talking about? The environment is everywhere. And so... Um, from unlearning at an early age that the water doesn't just come out of the tap, to experiencing like an interface with green space that was designed by folks for better and worse through a lot of decisions. Like there's no point at which I was not involved in the environment. I think it probably took uh, my first uh, internship at the Department of Environmental Protection in 1999 to realize it could be a job. <laughs>
1: Talk to us a little bit about your transition from, you know, you mentioned this internship, right? You mentioned um, the, you know, law school and your focus on environmentalism. Um, You know, how did you go from from kind of focusing and working on environmentalism to focusing on environmental and climate justice? Was this an intentional decision or a gradual shift over time?
2: Wow. So in 1996, I became a vegetarian, which was kind of the like beginning of my interpersonal journey around some of these issues, thinking through health, um, safety, security, access to green space. I wouldn't have used any of those terms. So, so, um, so, so around, around about that time, I started to make connections between, Um, How we live, where we live, what the environment is doing to us, what it does to black bodies and what it means to move from a rural background where people grow their own food in their own context to the other parts of my life where we would be in the city and everything came from a store or a market or um, a festival where there might be food every weekend. And so so it was really um, that was a part of a time period where I started Mm -hmm. examining my own relationship to the environment, the relationship of my community. I went to August Martin High School in Jamaica, Queens, and it's a big, massive lake in front of the school that kind of looks like a giant um, college campus because it had about 3,000 folks in it at any given time, but had this lake, and the lake had a car in it. And I remember thinking, you know, this should probably be some sort of lawyer for the lake. This seems really inappropriate like how are people going to use it for fishing or any of the other things people use other people dump cars into it somebody's got to be the air traffic controller or what's happening with this green space and because of my biology class i i knew a lot about like what it means for that kind of body of water to lose oxygen and so the, watching a couple of these threads come together it felt like oh i must have invented environmental law somewhere between 1994 and 1996 Um, But really, it was just my own coming of age into looking at these things. And at that time, there wasn't really a legal landscape for any of it. Like, it was just people doing wills and estates, uh, land conservation, uh, tax law, like all these different things. But none of it had come together as a public body of law that was about protecting the environment, except when it came to protect people from being poisoned by water or you know like the things that were happening literally upstream in New York where bodies of water are catching fire it took folks who fought for lived on and used the water to turn some of that into legal precedent so I wasn't far off, but it definitely wasn't what was happening in Jamaica, Queens, which is near an airport. And so there there's so many other moving pieces around urban use of resources, who decides what it is, city planning, all of this stuff will become very clear to me later. But my own pathway involved working for mm. free for a really long time. So I went from an internship at of environmental protection to an internship through my college city college in cuny um uh for the advisory council of historic preservation where i worked with valerie hauser who was one of the primary drivers okay. of what yeah. we all know now as knee so the fact that like i took me from new york to the very beginning of knee um and then i went to uh to the EPA in Denver, which covers North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming in another internship working under Jean Belil, experimenting with that. And Jean Belil was working on, um, her co was working on TRI inventory and GIS mapping. So I took up GIS mapping as a part of my internship. And then under Jean, we went to find out what folks in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming were doing around lead repatri- repatriation. So there was a lot of instances where the federal government and indigenous land were in government to government level conflicts about who was responsible for the realization that lead poison happened mm. in buildings that went from one sovereign to another sovereign. So mm. returned land back to a tribe because it belonged to them or because of some treaty or some other thing. And it had lead in it. Whose job was it to resolve that? Some of that work started at the advisory council, that internship, because, uh, ACHP, which was in the post office building, which then became, you know, Donald Trump's, uh, hotel for a while, many years ago, that was the smallest federal agency. And it was full of a bunch of archaeologists who, when they weren't constantly coming in contact with indigenous remains, recognized they needed to be the front line for how to deal with tribes who had to, att- had to speak to a sovereign in order for it to be an appropriate communication. So, through these internships that I got a scholarship here, grant there, I worked for free. I, turned, I learned a lot about how very similar the issues were at home to the issues were in North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, in D.C., across the nation. I got to hear um, my first federal hearing where um, a gentleman who's one of the last male survivors of the Crow tribe testified about mm-hmm. how every other man in his family had been murdered at the point at which... It was discovered his land his his land had mm. uh, minerals and oil and gas underneath it and he came and gave one of the most vociferous and powerful testimonies I've ever seen in my life to this day about how something could happen to him if the pattern continues because now that their land is valuable it becomes a source of stress and strain and a place where they're being attacked so my early work you know moved from water to air land um, what we do about toxics and so. Along the pathway, I went from learning a little here and learning a little there and meeting the communities and watching them respond in the same way to recognizing that they were being harmed. And it started to form what became like a grid or a network of how these problems happen. So um, from Advisory uh, Council for Historic Preservation to the EPA to... Um, to set up for race, poverty, and environment during my time in law school. It was really, uh, and Natural Resources Defense Council, I did a lot of work for free being a, 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 a black woman or for internship or for credit because I wanted to be where the work was happening and there was this emergence of folks who wanted to focus mm-hmm. on environmental justice the first time I ever met majora carter was when I was an intern in 2007 and she was working with her community in the bronx mm-hmm. and we passed like ships in the night like who is this other black woman and there were you know tons of people who were not black in between us saying you don't need to talk to her and so like so so so, so recognizing that there were real it was the first time I looked at the work and said All the people who run this stuff, great people who I've come to know and respect, there are not very many people who look like me in any roles other than administrative roles. And so I think some of what I do now is really foreshadowed by, you know, 20 years of moving all over this work and seeing the same patterns of exclusion and domination and oppression and real discomfort with equality in the work or equity in power dynamics inside of places where people are fighting for people and planet.
1: Thank you so much for that, you know, both your own personal history and through that, the history of EJ in some ways in this country. Um, So let's talk a little bit about leadership. You said you, you know, you realized pretty quickly early on in your career that there weren't many people that looked like you that were in leadership positions. And now you have gone on to hold many leadership positions across the public sector, NGO sector, philanthropy. Can you talk about that first leadership position you held? And what that was like for you yeah i
2: I'll tell you the first leadership position that led to the others was another volunteer role, so let me tell you um I was the co president of the d c chapter of eco women in washington d c for a number of years. I was there for six years, so two years as a member, two years in Leadership, and then two years, two years um, moving through different committees, and then two years as co-chair with another incredible woman. And in that time, I interviewed during. I think we had a signature event was called Eco Hour, and I interviewed two hundred women in this work during Eco Hour over the course of those years, asking them, "How did you do this work? How did you stay in this work?" And what I learned from all those interviews is that some of them got lucky, most of them had uh, a level of privilege, and that. All of them had to work 10 times harder because there were no meeting places for women. There were no meeting places for people of color. Mm -hmm. There was no, we used to joke, there's no Moose Lodge where you get the secret password and then you're in a network. And so it was a very early, early place doing that work. And there's tons of people who I've interviewed who I now know as colleagues and friends who I don't know if they even know that was the first time we met, you know, 10 to 15 years before they might know that. Um, All of that led to me continuing to build a network. That's pretty like it's hard to beat money unless you know a lot of people. And so over the course of all these experiences, I came to know lots of people who came to know my work. And so when um, I went to the environmental leadership fellow program, um, I met, I chose to do the regional version of that because the national, version, I thought with my experience, I have enough national relationships that what I really need is local relationships in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And so I was in the Chesapeake regional network of ELP in 2015, where I met, you know, 30 different people who live within an hour of me who are also thinking about this and working in different places. And one of them said, there's a role at the Maryland Environmental Health Network. A woman named Rebecca Ruggles is getting ready to step down. This is an, a statewide network that focuses on uh, on solutions that come from community environmental health issues and brings in philanthropy to support it and understand it as a part of their bigger work. And so I applied to that role Um, Because I thought, well, environmental health has this really cool tool, like it's like, you know, the Rosetta Stone, social determinants of health. And as a person who had gone to law school and thought about the regulatory impacts and the legal environment, and who had done a lot of uh, protest development, organizing, working with communities, and taught, I learned a long time ago that the door that you go through if you have regulatory might is a very different door than you get to go through, even if you're a person who's harmed by something. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go to the Maryland Environmental Health Network and work on some of that? So I became the executive director And Baltimore, and I traveled the entire state. So in between those two jobs, I worked at um, the Maryland Energy Administration and and Martin O'Malley's administration under Abigail Hopper. And so another opportunity to learn, where is the money going? What are people doing around energy? Are folks prepared for this stuff? And so my life feels a lot like a roadmap of our evolution of this work.
1: And, you know, when you think about, like, you know, the leadership roles you've had and the things that you consider success you know, when you reflect back on it, is it, do you kind of, you know, do, are, are is it more, or are there more examples about the processes that you helped shape? Or is it, you know, do you speak more or point more to outcomes, you know, whether it's like passing legislation or or other things that, you know, you, you hold dear um, as victories. You want to talk a little bit about that, like process versus outcomes? I know you'd say both, but, you know,
2: you no know, I, I would actually say process i think the journey is the work like i think you know climate critical earth where i'm a founder of this like global support network is not about us ending the ending climate change it's about us making sure there are enough people who are alive who care about it who are resourced to actually do the work with emotional capacity and so i think the same community of communities the yes, it's important to identify that FERC is problematic or that the Public Service Commission isn't working. But it's actually more important to activate people where they live in their zip code to recognize what the Department of Health is or isn't doing for them, who their local representatives are. I remember going into hearing after hearing in different agencies in Maryland and having folks go, where'd you find all these activated people who are asking me for things I can Mm. actually... Like I would hear a regulator say, I usually get into meetings where people yell at me about things I have no control over. And he said, your people came in this room and asked me for things that are in my authority, which is a different problem. But at least they know who I am. They know what I need to do. And so I feel like those are the victories. Watching someone in a community recognize that it's not just my problem. My whole community's experiencing this. There's totally a body, whether it's zoning or legislation or air or water, who's responsible for this. And I need to talk to them and having that light go on. Some of my favorite researchers are folks who, once they realize this, like while I'm at home, you know, eating my vegan mac and teas, you know, they are they are like I just figured out that there was a case and then this happened. And at the and in the Public Service Commission, they don't have to do what they said they were going to do last time, because unlike a regular court of law that has to follow its own logic, your Public Service Commission doesn't have to. Like, that's the sort of thing I know. But watching a community member tell me this and recognize, oh, we have a hill to climb. That's going to take a lot of us. We're going to be invested in that. Those are the victories because there are no singular people who win these wars. There are no folks mm-hmm. who make victories happen on their own. There are people who live their entire lives and never have anything work out in terms of outcomes the way they need, but activating a whole community of folks to feel responsible for what's mm-hmm. happening to them and to feel like agents of their own support is really just like a powerful thing. And whether we're talking about climate strikes in 2019 and leading some mm-hmm. of those north america or uh, my role with the environmental grant makers and galvanizing the people who fund this work to understand how and why it happens and who it happens with it's actually all process so i would say i think the victories are in um activating other folks so it's not just you doing it
1: that's beautiful i love that and um so you know i think to have a fair and balanced conversation you know we you know us on this podcast and agents of change you know we we also have to shine a light right on structural mm-hmm. barriers right um you know it's not it's not it's not a lack of qualified women of color qualified black women you know it's not a lack of qualifications or capacity the reason why there's not more women of color leaders right it's 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 the structural barriers right that's right and um, and the resistance to that leadership. And I, I just want to give you the space and I hope, you know, you would share with us some of the barriers you faced um, mm. and, you know, how, how you know how you have um, the strategies you've used to kind of navigate some of these challenges.
2: Yeah, I know we started talking before the podcast about uh, the article that was written about the glass cliff or the idea that, that people who are leaders, uh, especially those who show up in women's bodies, especially those of us who are melanated and if we're black, good God, um, the opposite of a glass ceiling uh, is a glass cliff where we are handed off things that are really in poor shape. Uh, have potentially or likely been scandalized or under-resourced, and it feels a lot like the problems you experience as a person who's trying to fight an uphill battle to protect your health. Like you're handed a thing that seems like a tool, but it's actually a problem. (laughs) It's it's part of the problem. And so for the glass cliff is often a place where a really talented person is put, we often refer to them as a unicorn to solve a problem that is not impossible, but worse against the design of the very thing she was hired to do. And so I can say in my own experience that, like, whether we're talking about passing a piece of legislation in a state house that could totally do it or in a Congress where people understand logical answers, or a nonprofit organization that has a mission that says you should be doing XYZ, the processes that we have developed, the design that we have put forward really does reward bad actors, uh, obfuscate the work of process, and make it seem as though a lone wolf handles things. So the idea that a unicorn could come in and be really talented into an entity and have a successful work life suggest that anybody who works for her is aware of that, um, that folks know, understand the rules of leadership and a fellowship. I have a really uh, great friend um, who does a lot of It helps a lot of people learn that leadership is not just about having a talented person at the top, but having folks who understand that in order for that person to be successful, the team underneath her has to be ready, willing, and able to make change and to operate in ways that they haven't before. So if an entity was run by a white man and if it was an environmental, it was for 50 years, the idea that you put in a talented person of color or a talented woman and that will suddenly change the way everything happens is a huge mistake. Because if she doesn't have senior leadership, that's very, very, very clear on how the projections about what black women will do to space have to be met with expectations that come from that woman, not expectations of a community that's only ever envisioned this leadership. So we have structural issues to deal with because we have boards who uh, expect leadership to show up in the ways that it shows up in white men. We have to deal with funders who feel really comfortable working with people they already know. And if we are people who have only recently been given the opportunity to move through this work on our own merit, we don't have those relationships. Because in my case, I can tell you, uh, because of the way that racist, misogynist policy and design operates inside of every one of these sectors, I learned that I could move around in three year period to avoid being totally permanently destroyed. So like my own career is a series of me grabbing a skill, meeting some people, developing a network and then leaving before the toxicity mm-hmm. destroyed me. And when people ask me about that, they're like, well, what do you want the youth to do? I'm like, I don't want them to follow in my footsteps. I would be really excited if we did a better job at Mm -hmm. teaching folks how to follow the leadership of folks in different bodies, how to take more risks, how to resource people Mm -hmm. at the same level as they would if they felt more comfortable and to interrogate their own discomfort about the leadership of the generation they're supporting and not continue to rely on the premises of leadership that came before us. That not only had it handed to them, but are a part of the systemic problems we have to undo.
1: Uh, so much to unpack. So I was going to ask, but I think you've already answered this. I mean, do you, do you see the glass cliff phenomenon playing out in, in the climate movement? I think
2: the idea is that if there's been a scandal, if the organization has been covered in political, if, the, if, if there's a rumor that maybe they're not so good with people, what they're actually saying is that the entity, the organization, the government structure has not acculturated itself to recognizing that Leading from the front with a man's aptitude, with a ton of privilege, is not the orientation of the next generation of leaders who mm. show up in different bodies, with different experiences, with different networks, untapped networks. We have to make space for all of that. And I think the key answer is an eye on redesign and an increased risk tolerance, because where we're putting risk is inappropriate in the first place. So the old boys club decides that everything other than an old boy is risk that's a really weak place to rest an entire the future of work that's supposed to save people and planet and so i think every time i see notice of an incredible black or brown person a trans person running an organization i have a little pang in my chest and i mm. think i hope this person is supported mm. i pray that they have actual partners I hope that the board gives them room. I'm really be excited if the funders give them two, three, four years of running of capital of operating money, so that they can start to teach all the people who work with them what it means to be under leadership that doesn't look anything like what you've seen before.
1: So powerful. Now I know you've started a few of your own organizations and consortiums, and right, you're you're a founder. You you know you're you you know. I, I hear, you know, what I'm hearing is that you're trying, you're creating these new structures in response to your own experiences of being in these structures that haven't supported you, you know, because of all of the isms, the racism, the sexism, sexism, you know, and all the multi- multiplicity of it. So, how how has that experience been in in terms of you know, kind of starting from the ground up and and trying to create? you know, structures that are an alternative to what you, you know, what you've been through?
2: Yeah, well, Climate Critical is about to release a burnout survey next month. That is a national um, survey that we did of a community that's deeply burned out. Like, we'll have a whole nother conversation about what it's like to talk to people in the middle of being victimized about what that feels like and and what the and response rates and that sort of thing. But I, but I would say that I think it is not different enough. The experience, like being a founder in this body, you don't encounter entirely different issues. You encounter folks who say, "Well, you know, funding usually comes from uh, proof of concept." Well, guess what? If the con- if the concept we all agreed to was a white supremacist structure where money passed through systems from one part of the culture to another part with exclusion of an entire, you know, the global majority. Then there are no networks for those folks and so i think being a founder is empowering because it means i don't have to talk to 12 people about the decisions we make. but it does mean forming a collective of folks who have to consistently prove over and over again that the discomfort that's being felt is actually racism that like the the fact that that black women feminist founders do not receive funding at the rate of other folks we have to prove that it's a statistical truth in order to undergird individual things that are being built to respond to a community that's in chaos. The movement itself is in so many shambles from the Inflation Reduction Act to the IIJA to all the things that came before it. We have so degraded the quality of our relationship networks by continuing to do things in the ways we've already done them, that the only answers are new things that have to be built and some old things going away if not many of them. And so I think there's a multi-generational conversation, a race conversation, a gender conversation, a non-gendered conversation, all of which is happening at the same time because the workplace for environment and climate has four generations of bodies in it. And so Mm -hmm. as the baton gets past, the places that will be successful the entities that will win will be the ones that have a higher risk tolerance, and the ones that make space for new things being born because other things have to die.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I reflect on my own experience of starting agents of change. You know, and yeah. right. I mean, you know, I didn't really ask permission, right? I just started doing it. But you know, it it really made me think too. It's um, you know, just as an Asian woman, a woman of color, you know, I, I you know, it's I haven't necessarily like you know i'm not the person that society often looks to as a natural leader right and it also just you know has made me reflect on who gets the kind of the privilege of the benefit of the doubt That's to great. take these risks right to pursue non traditional ideas right um, that are inherently risky especially early on right because it's easy for people to jump on the bandwagon once you once you've yeah. had some success but uh, you know, um, and I mean, I think, you know, I was able to do this without minimal, with minimal resources in the beginning. And, you know, and I just, I honestly didn't ask anybody. I just started doing it, you know, because I'm sure if I did ask a lot of people, you know, I would have gotten a lot of, you know, a lot of pushback, doubt, all that kind of stuff, you know.
2: Even folks who might be allies do not understand that we are building the road as we're on it, which is a very true proposition because it isn't just about how an entity runs, but how it's funded, how it's resourced, the aperture under which it has a vision. And you just you put the nail on the head when you said that, like trying to get an institution or a set of institutions or a field or a sector that is deeply invested in the status quo to imagine that the very thing it's calling for in its mission will require it to be different is a massive. It's a paradigm shift. It's pretty deep.
1: And so right now, you know, when you when you look at this work, when you look at the space of, you know, mainstream climate, climate justice, you know, what about it gives you hope? Like what keeps you energized?
2: Um so what keeps me energized at the moment is what I started to talk about just now that I feel like what's happening with the resources is something new. Like mm. I have watched people my entire career ask for what could be quantified as, I call it um, coffee ground and toilet paper money. So they go to someone with a lot of resources and for, my, for just a few pennies, my whole community could have some support, which would then activate our networks. I think people have recognized that the resourcing is not the issue, it's the vote of confidence that comes with the resources. The opportunity to experiment. What gives me hope is that there are people in this work I do not know. So what gives me, mm-hmm. what gives me hope is that there are folks with vantage points on this work that i'm not familiar with and it feels like for the longest time there were like five six maybe ten people doing any given thing there yeah. are people getting degrees in specialties that we didn't have language for just five years ago yeah there are, and they're working with folks who got activated on the internet because they saw a video or people who've been displaced by a fire or a flood who are switching careers because they're like this makes everything else I wanted to do pretty impossible. And so I am excited by the diversity of things being built to to deal with this all-encompassing crisis. I think some folks call it the poly crisis, other folks call it a syndemic because of the vulnerability of folks. But I think this moment is creating so many opportunities for intervention that if we are careful not to revert to the narrow, exclusive, Uh, familiarity-driven ways that we have done this work previously, there are old strategies and old technology, uh, middle-aged and senior and young folks, all of whom are chomping at the bit to try. Yeah. And give me hope because I meet meet folks who are in retirement weaponizing their pensions and removing it from oil and gas, and folks who aren't sure they're ever going to have a retirement standing outside of banks to go, this can't be the way. I'm not buying a house if If what it does is feed the system or they're making choices about their own lives that are related to their politics down to what they eat, where they live, who they're in community with. And I I think I'm really constantly surprised at the bargaining power and strength of young workers. So part of climate critical focuses on young workers is because the idea that the workplace has to be another toxic fight on the way to the toxic fight. Like seeing people go, no, I deserve my humanity. I have to take time off. I need to probably be a person. I should probably be in relationships with people that aren't just about work. I have to have a rest practice. That stuff really is exciting. And on the funder side, there are funders who are very slowly recognizing that, oh, well, some of the infrastructure we need to support is emotional infrastructure. Mm. They keep writing blank checks to organizations that don't care about how the people who work for them are treated or how long it takes for them to burn out. Then that becomes a funder problem as well. So I'm I see streams of things to be hopeful about. And most of it involves undoing what we've already
1: done. Mm, I love that. Emotional infrastructure, all kinds yeah. of new concepts. I'm coming away with this. And so, I mean, you you spoke to this a little bit before, but um I think you know, you know, our agents of change fellows, they're early career folks, you know, really giving us hope um, in EJ and CJ, and you know and you know a lot of the listeners of our podcast are you know they're they're passionate they're they're brilliant they're you know driven to you know they're really committed to community driven models of structural change um do you i mean do you have advice as you know some of them you know they have leadership potential and we need them as leaders right we need their bold brilliant ideas but often that can mean um, navigating leadership roles in predominantly white spaces like you have done many, many times. And um, I mean, if you you had to give advice, um, you know, what would it be? Uh, Don't give up. Mm -hmm.
2: Also, uh, seek out folks who are not like you. I think for young folks, I think energy needs wisdom and vice versa. There are folks who are looking at their last fight. There are folks who um, are seeing the infrastructure change, innovation, money moving, large sums of resources going from government into the private sector. And they're like, Okay, I did my part to get it there, and they're looking for someone to hand that off to. Now, what I what I think I see as a barrier to that is that sometimes people expect their elders to be cuddly. Mm. <laughs> or, or, or or and like they're not teddy bears. They're just people who started at a job because they were trying to solve a problem who aged. And so I think I think one of the things we need to expect is that there are every kind of human doing every kind of work. And so if you're a young person, you should definitely be connected to um, entities and organizations that have real diversity in the age groups of people who are there. Mm-hmm. Because that means they have diversity of experience. And some of them will be excited to talk to you about what they've learned. And I think for folks who are midstream, like being able to look both ways, I joke that mm-hmm. like being middle-aged, means being in the middle of the seesaw and yeah. you, could have, you could be someone with decades of experience but only two years of focus on climate or energy or environment because it's dawned on you mid-career that it's a block to something else that means you have to look both ways for elders and folks who are thinking about this in critical ways right now and so i think the best thing we could all be doing is look for your community because it's the best thing we've ever built
1: Mm-hmm. yeah So, you know, we're wrapping up here and, you know, in the spirit of um, rest and emotional resilience and being, giving, you know, not making recharging an afterthought, um, you know, if you had an afternoon of free time, you know, uh, you know, how would you spend it?
2: So I actually do at EGA, we um, are adding wellness practice to just our work, just like every week. And I think what I spend doing in that time uh, is... Often reading things that are not about my work,
0: um, mm-hmm. writing,
2: um, pr- making a podcast. So I'm one of the producers on a Coolest Show podcast with Reverend Yearwood. So that's actually a thing I get to do for fun that I sometimes remember is like, oh, that's totally a job. So um, create like creating things that think about the parts of the work. Just being in a green space. Like I I have not changed. I'm still someone who loves to be in the I don't guess they don't call it that anymore, all of Prospect Park. I don't know what a clean side is anymore. It all looks pretty much the same. But like a good afternoon in the park riding my bike or taking a long walk or going for a swim or running or any number of things that are really easy to do from just about anywhere writing it's all it's all happening i think tapping into the creative side of my personality that isn't just about building things that people can see some of it's just for the sheer enjoyment of beauty or going to an exhibit um at the met there's a a room called afrofuturism and Mm. i thought well holy smokes the met has a room that isn't about like things stolen from africa but like people (laughs) have visions i'm going to see that you know so i think spending a lot of time in the cultural parts that drive all of this, that make it worth doing, whether that's the culture of a drum circle in the park or the culture of an exhibit where people are thinking about our bodies in space through their own lens and not someone else's. So if you're not having fun, um, it's just work. And that's not, that's a thing that was taught to me by Vernice Miller Travis. She told me that Mm -hmm. once that like, you're
1: not having any fun, you're just at work.
2: And I thought, well, why can't work be fun? So yeah.
1: We got to feed our spirits and souls, right? And I think culture really helps with that. And you you mentioned you really like to read. So we always like to end the pod by hearing, you know, what's the latest book that you've been reading that's, you know.
2: Oh, uh, The Persuaders by Anand Uh huh, is a good one. Um, I'm also, I'm usually reading two or three books at the same time because I pick it up, I put it down, I pick it up, I put it down. So I'm also reading... um, prisoners of geography by tim marshall which mm. is a really one about how everything is designed and then i'm gonna sh- i'm gonna show you a book that was actually written at the last like the idea of it came from the last climate critical earth retreat that we had it was like our rest practice program um one of our members is a woman named Aya De Leon, and she writes climate pulp fiction let oh, me tell wow. you some craziness that you never knew you needed so she writes books where like you know Sergio's shirt gets ripped off but in the middle of the book at the last retreat we talked about um, she she said I like to write about complicated environmental topics but put it in these contexts that like you just pick it up and it's like a harlequin romance and so she said what would a love triangle for environmentalists include and I was like well (laughs) currently it would need to be like fossil fuel non-proliferation and versus crypto so you know if if the protagonist fell in love and had to decide between a crypto bro who like was making all his money off this coal-fired crypto and like activist who was working on getting the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty signed, that would actually be really juicy to those of us who are both humans and environ nerds. And she wrote the <laughs> tag on thing. It's called That Dangerous Energy. I love it. Oh, beautiful. And, like, as i'm reading it, i'm like oh my god this is embarrassing what did she do he did what oh my god you know so like that it's one of those things where you know people will learn about non-proliferation and but they won't want to talk about where they learned it but her her main focus is that we learn everywhere all the time why not make it fun and interesting yeah so like really fun read about like a beach read about our work that has a lot of lusty parts in it so i would say i think You have to balance out like these massive tomes on policy and design with something else, some non-nutritional, uh, educational and maybe fun work. And this book about this love triangle, you know, I'm obviously rooting for the activists and not the crypto bro. We'll see what happens by the end of the book.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to check it out. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tamara. I greatly appreciate you dropping knowledge and wisdom with us. Uh, you know, uh, Just feel so privileged to hold this space with you and um, thank you in advance for, you know, everything that you're doing in the middle of that seesaw.
2: Well, I appreciate you. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be part of the Agents of Change community.
0: All right. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Ami and Tamara. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeNEJ.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was recorded and produced by Dr. Ami Zoda, edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team Dr. Yoshira Ornelis Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Loria Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak to fellow Dr. Robbie Parks, an environmental epidemiologist who will be an assistant professor at Columbia University in environmental health sciences this spring. Have a great week, folks.